welcome to this BJSM podcast where you'll hear the second half of a conversation that I had with Queensland University Professor Gwen Joel. You'll hear her talk about how to manage headache, her thoughts on what it takes to be a terrific clinician, an opinion about the state of the physiotherapy profession right now, and her favourite parts of the fantastic new resource for sports physiotherapy, Greaves Modern Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy. We'll move to headache and really your most renowned, I would have thought, and first became famous for your work on um, headache and the relation of the neck to headache. Is there a story of how you got into this before we try and uh, get the essence of your work? Um, <laughs> oh, you've always got these family things, haven't you? My mother used to get terrible headaches, which is why I, I originally way, 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 way back got um, got into headaches, it's, except she had the classical migraines, um, which I don't think physio does much for. But she she did spark my interest in 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 headaches, and I have been interested in them for many many years. Okay, so let's say we've got a patient uh, who's an active young person, you know, works um, in a busy job, has responsibilities, there's a you know, range of factors, and she complains of headache. What's the sort of headache that makes you think? Uh, might be coming from the neck and take us through the scenario please um, well well there are some um, quite um, uh, definitive characteristics of cervicogenic headache and there's a there's a whole classification criteria for them but but typically um, a cervicogenic headache is is usually a unilateral headache it certainly can be bilateral one of the most important things is that it usually starts as a neck pain, so it starts in the neck and then progresses to a headache. Um, it's it's always side consistent, so if you have a right-sided neck pain, you'll get a right-sided headache. It's not like migraine that can can swap uh, swap sides, etc. So that it's it's a it's a unilateral headache that. Uh, begins as a pain in the neck, develops as headache, is aggravated by postures, movements, things that relate to the neck, classically. And then um, our, our research has shown that um, you must also at the same time find evidence in the physical examination that there's uh, joint dysfunction, uh, most commonly in the upper three or four uh, facet joints in the neck, that there is muscle dysfunction and there is a deficit in range of motion of the neck. And from all your teaching um, of this, what are the things that you find takes learners a bit longer to get to? What's the sign of the expert clinician in this area? Uh, I think one of the one of the points for for an expert clinician is is your very good manual handling skills. In fact, to, to be able to do an effective manual examination to actually diagnose the upper cervical joint dysfunction, um, uh, you know, when you are uh, palpating for joints like O1 and 1, 2, etc., that takes a reasonable amount of skill. Um, the other thing, too, is to be able to be able to look at these or, or, or uh, move these joints, not creating any pain by your, um, by your handling. Um, one of the things about headaches is that they all do become, the, this trigeminocervical nucleus becomes centrally sensitised virtually in every sort of headache form so that you can expect there to be tenderness and, uh, in the neck 
um, and, and that will happen regardless of, of the headache type in many cases. So that if your manly, manual handling skills aren't good enough, you can be getting false uh, positives by by just they sensitive and, and your your techniques are not perfect, so you're hurting them just by the technique. Um, so th- I think that's what differentiates a, a beginning clinician from a, an experienced clinician, that the experienced clinician can actual, uh, actually handle the neck and move the joints without uh, creating um, pain literally by their, by their palpatory skills. And when in your position being at major conferences and connecting with the world on this, what are the trends in the area that either reassure you or concern you? What is concerning me is that um, I, I believe there is a there is a, a real entity called cervicogenic headache. It's a it's a secondary headache to musculoskeletal dysfunction. Now there is no doubt that the neck can play a role in other headache types, um, but there's a bit of a move trying to link um, musculoskeletal dysfunction in the neck. Um, uh, to migraine and to tension t- and, and tension type headache, and and I, I suppose trying to sort of say that that the neck is possibly a causative factor in these headaches, uh, I, I believe very strongly that it probably isn't. That people could have a sore neck as an as an epiphenomenon um, of, of of other headache forms, but the but dysfunction in the neck has not got so much a causative role in these headaches. We should be treating the headaches that we're really, really good at. And in my belief, that's cervicogenic headache because it's secondary to cervical musculoskeletal dysfunction. It can be very unfair on patients if we start um, suggesting that that by treating the neck we can cure everything because clinical trials have certainly shown that um, manual therapy and that for for migraine, etc., is is not terribly successful. So I suppose my concern is, is that we can clearly identify which headaches have got an association with musculoskeletal dysfunction um, and which haven't. Because one of the confounding features is about 70 to 80% of people with migraine and tension type headache will uh, complain of neck pain in association with their headache. But it's the realisation that that neck pain is literally a referred pain from the brain. It's a referred pain from this uh, sensitised trigeminocervical nucleus. It's not neck pain uh, that is being derived from nociception uh, in the actual cervical structures. Gwen, as we move towards the latter part of the podcast, and thanks so much for your time, what's it take to be a good clinician? How's the profession moving? And what's the latest on grief? So if we begin with what does it take to be a good clinician? Um, well, I think, well, number one, you've got to have a passion and a passion probably for patients as well as the, uh, as the uh, profession um, and be a strong advocate for patients. Patients are some of your best teachers and I think uh, always listen because you'll learn from them. They'll tell you an awful lot. And, and I think all the time you must challenge yourself for better, for the best outcomes. Um, you know, if you're pushing yourself and demanding the best from yourself, I, I think it always uh, pushes you forward to learn more and to keep up to date with the evidence and, and new methods of management. Um, so it's, it's, it's a multiple things that make you uh, become a good clinician. But as I said, the patients are, the patients are important and your sort of desire to help them 
uh, will will start pushing you to to expand your skills, etc. And do you feel the profession's heading in the right direction? Has made progress. I, I, very much so. Very much so. I, I think uh, we're we're really maturing as a profession, and um, I think what has made the huge change was that. Um, you know, way back in 76 in Australia when we became first contact practitioners and that did make us responsible uh, for the development of our own profession. And so we had to assume responsibilities to lead research and to, to lead the development of, of clinical practice across all fields of physio. And I actually think that we've done that extremely well and, and I think you've just got to look at people um, who are getting in Australia NHMRC fellowships and program grants and centres of research excellence um, and the same in the states where, where physios are, are winning NIH grants etc to show that now in a relatively short period of time because prior to the 70s uh, we weren't doing too much research and so in a relatively short period of time that um, we are now ranked as in evidence from the from the grants that we're getting from these top funding bodies, um, uh, very proficient and 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 at doing very high quality research. And I think in turn, most importantly, that's it, that's informing practice. And again, I've only got to reflect of, of the way that uh, I practice physio a few years ago compared to how I practice now. I mean, it's vastly different, which is a very good thing, I might add. And we see physios in leadership positions in health authorities. Yeah, well, certainly uh, physios are taking um, both administrative leadership roles in government and, and in health authorities, uh, but they're also taking clinical leadership roles. And, uh, and a local example I can give you here in Queensland, and which I know is happening uh, in many places around Australia and, and indeed in the UK, is um, the physios, uh, again, are acting as the first contact practitioners, for example, in hospitals when um, general practitioners will refer patients for an orthopaedic consult, um, consultation. I mean, what they were finding was that we were getting huge waiting lists and many of the patients weren't, um, weren't actually, uh, it wasn't necessary for them to, to see an orthopod. And so uh, one of the systems they've brought in here is that the physiotherapist is the first line contact. So when patients are referred, uh, the physiotherapist will examine them and decide then whether uh, this patient is better receiving conservative care or indeed um, has a condition that may warrant surgery. And so in that case, the patient will stay on the surgical waiting list. But when surgery is not, not the first choice, the physio will take them off that list and then arrange um, multidisciplinary care. So the care team is, a, is led by the physio, includes a, um, a psychologist, a dietitian, an occupational therapist, and they then manage the patients. And certainly what they found is that very few patients uh, go back on the surgical waiting list and the, the waiting lists for the surgeons have, have decreased considerably and it's become a, a far more cost-effective and, again, as far as the patient's concerned, beneficial experience rather than sitting for two or three years on a waiting list. So that's just one example of, of the leadership of the profession. And Gwen, congratulations on finishing the fourth edition of Greaves Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy. There must be a story in that uh, process and 
what are the most exciting parts about that book for you? Well, I, <clears throat> I'm a bit biased. I think the whole book's exciting. Um, but uh, no, it, it was a very, very uh, good exercise, and and we worked with some uh, amazing people who are who are top in their field in various parts of the world. Um, it's difficult to sort of say what I think are the best parts, but um, uh, parts that I, I particularly enjoy uh, is the advances in basic sciences is very, very good to, to just sort of see where we've come. Um, a section that I was keen on was the advances in measurement, having a little bit of a research background. But um, when you start looking at the sophistication of measurement methods that we can use now, in both in research and in clinical practice, uh, it's, it, it bodes for a very exciting future. And so we've got uh, it includes um, uh, sections on uh, measurement me- on on MRI. Um, and again, it's not the standard MRI. It's lo- using MRI to look at muscle function, to brain function, etc. Uh, the transmagnetic uh, stimulation. The advances in ultrasound imaging and, and physios are using ultrasound in clinical practice as much as they're using it in research. But uh, there's a tremendous amount now where we're using it to actually help us look at muscle function, re-educate muscle function and that sort of thing is discussed. And the other thing of interest is uh, the, the modern methods of movement analysis. When, when you think it wasn't too many decades ago that we had very primitive methods of, uh, of looking at movement and analysing movement, and that has uh, massively advanced. Um, other areas that I liked was we, we did look at research methods because I, I think it's important for physios to understand them. And, and there's a particular chapter on uh, translational research, which again, is is so important to bring what is found in research and introduce it into clinical practice. And that's actually often harder than you think. So there is this whole area of translational research that's now developing. Um, I, I suppose one of the, and naturally, one of the biggest sections of the book and, and probably the most exciting is uh, the one on contemporary issues in practice. Um, we had a lot of thought about how we'd present this and there, there are several innovations with the introduction of extremity uh, joint problems and muscle problems. Um, but the other innovation was that we tried to introduce this concept of debating current issues in the field and probably the low back is the easiest one to give the example of. So asking a person to write one chapter on how do you treat low back in one easy lesson would be a very naive thing, I think, in this day and age. It requires a book on itself. And so what we decided to do was was to look at contemporary issues in practice. And the one that we we uh, chose for the low back was the subgrouping because there are about four or five methods within physiotherapy these days to subgroup patients so that we can give them uh, more precise treatments. So that chapter basically basically lets the experts in the subgrouping field present their methods so that the, the reader can then look at these all together and, and look at their synergies, their differences, etc. So I thought that was quite an exciting chapter. But there's some very good up-to-date knowledge across the field of, of musculoskeletal physiotherapy. And does it, I know you're a fan of multimodal, multidisciplinary care, really, for these complex conditions. Is that covered? Do you want to just touch on that for a bit, Gwen? Yes, certainly. Um, 
Well, musculoskeletal um, or management of musculoskeletal um, conditions has been for for a good decade to two decades now within the bio, well in the scope of of the biopsychosocial model, and I think that is is very very important. It's it's not good to have a very very strong or, or uniquely biological bias, and neither is it good to have a very very strong and uniquely psychosocial. Um, bias. So, to to always regard patients within this within within that domains of of how is this affecting them? What's the social work aspects as well as the physical aspects, which physios are probably the most comfortable with. But it's very very important to look at the total picture. And again, it's the it's the the fads and fashions where you can often have a a um, bias towards your manual therapy, or suddenly you'll have a bias towards um, therapeutic exercise. But I think the thing that we have learnt more than anything is that you really do need a multimodal approach. Um, no single method is going to get people rehabilitated. It's looking at what you need in your manual therapies combined with what you need in your therapeutic exercise combined with what the patient needs um, as far as their assistance at work or work or sport practices, etc. So I think if we keep thinking of multi all the time, multimodal, Within that whole biopsychosocial model is is the best approach to go forward. That's probably a great place to leave it, Gwen. I really appreciate your time today. That's okay, my pleasure. That was the second part of a chat with Professor Gwen Joel, and you can access the first part on neck pain by googling Gwen Joel and BJSM podcast, or by using our BJSM mobile app.